what I'm really excited about is, is as we start off this new year, um, what a powerful way for us to really set a course, um, set uh, a, a desired course that we want to go. Last week I talked about goals and, 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 and trust and those kinds of things, and, and this year we're, we're starting off now with the next several weeks on values, and I think it's really important that we understand what values are, because I think if I were to uh, pull everybody in the room, it's likely that, that all of you would have something that you value, all of you would have something that you would think about is, is I value this, or this is what's important to me. But the question becomes, how do we, how do we uh, define what those values are? How do we translate that as to a, an identity and a voice in the life um, of a particular church or of this church? So I'm hopeful that as we finish this series, that that's kind of where we land, that, that we land on that spot, that we know together uh, what those things are. So let me, let me ask this question. How many of you know somebody that's a button pusher? Don't me. Okay, a couple of you. All right, yeah. You know, what, what's a button pusher? A button pusher is, is somebody that knows what needles you. A button pusher is somebody that they know how to get under your skin. And uh, whether they bring up a political statement that they know is just going to rub you raw, or whether it's something else, they know how to push your button. You know, button pushers are, are individuals that, if we're not careful, man, they can really, really set us off, right? Think of that button pusher in your life right now. Who is it? What would you do if, you, if that button pusher was in front of you? What would you, what would you say to him or her? You know, Jesus was a button pusher. Now, let me tell you why I think Jesus was a button pusher. You know, Jesus had a way of kind of getting into the face of, of individuals, those that were the ultra-religious and the common person who were learning to know what it meant to be a person of faith. Jesus kind of got that, that way of pushing buttons. Let, 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 let's look at a couple of ways that he pushed buttons. One way he pushed buttons was he said, you've got to love your enemies. Now, how many of us want to do that? Nobody wants to love their enemy, especially the person that really drags us down. Jesus said, not only love your enemies, he said, you know what, if you, if you have two of something, I want you to give one of those away. And I want you to give it to somebody who doesn't have anything at all. I mean, is that not pushing button? Because, you know, we work hard and we thrive and we want to hold on to those things, but Jesus says you can't hold on to it. I want you to give one of those things away. That's another button to push. Here, here's another one he said. He said, turn the other cheek. When someone does something to you, turn the other cheek and deal with it that way. Now, is that a passive way to deal with it? Who knows? But he's pushing buttons, and he's calling into us a way of thinking that was probably unorthodox because, well, society said that we've got to think this way and this way and this way, and this is the way we've got to move forward in life. But Jesus came into the world, and he kind of shook things up. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did he, um, why did he kind of go in the direction that was what we would call unorthodox or or uh, different than what we would think. And in fact, you know, some would, would challenge that and say, you know, why did he choose to do that? Because ultimately it did what? It got him killed. And Jesus died at the hands of those that he pushed the buttons against. And he moved in to that direction. The Gospels say that, that when Jesus came into his ministry, when we believe in the incarnation, we believe that incarnation means that God in deity entered into and became flesh in deity, that Jesus was God walking on earth, okay? So we believe that when that happened, that that expression of God through Jesus as the Christ was a way of God saying to us that something's about to change. That something's about to change and something's about to bring forward a, a new covenant. That, that Jesus is expressing that something new is coming from the mouth of God so that they, we can focus. We can focus on the things that are most important for us. 
Uh, let's look at uh, values because I think that, that Jesus was the one who expressed the values of who God is. So let's get on the same page and let's look at what, what we want to define over the next couple of weeks and even from here on out. We want to define what the word values means. It's a person's principles or standards of behavior. So it's how you think and how you act. It's one's judgment of what is important in life. What is it that you value? What is it that is important to you? What is it that, that, that is non-negotiable? What is your core? That is the value, a value statement about who, who and what you are. When you're a value holder, it means that, that, that you uh, consider something to be important. It means that it's beneficial and that you're willing to do whatever you can to ensure that you have that value and that you want to be an influencer so that those around you not only know the value that you carry or the value that you believe, but you also want them to see the importance of that value in you so that they too can consider making that a value for themselves. Are we all on the same page? That's what, that's what we want to look like with, with values. So, so the very night that, that Jesus and his friends get together, the very night that, um, that they're up celebrating the Passover meal, this would be Jesus' last Passover meal with his friends, with his disciples. And he begins sharing with them something is about to change. He begins to say that things are going to look different. And just like Elvis, Judas leaves the building and uh, he goes on and he begins to show his value system as he goes to sell Jesus out to the leaders. And the disciples are gathered together and Jesus looks him in the face and he begins a very intimate conversation. You ever had a conversation with someone when you look at them, there's tears in your eyes? Because what you're trying to communicate to them is, is of such great importance that, it, that it's, the, it's, it, it's the essence of, of, of what you believe and, and you want them to know that you are really serious about what you're about to say. Maybe, maybe it's the person you're communicating to and their eyes are watery because they're receiving it in the same way in which you're striving to get. That's how Jesus was looking in the eyes of his disciples. As he gathered them their night, he was looking at them that, that very way. You know, and Jesus said this. He said, a new command I give you. Now think about that for a second. So, so here they, they have come through his entire ministry uh, those last three years, and they've seen such great things happen. They've seen people um, be healed of afflictions. They've learned about sin. They've learned about different kinds of things. They've, they've been involved in the teachings of God. And they are clearly aware of the restrictive system that Judaism was built upon. And Jesus looks at them with tears in his eyes as he's getting ready to break the bread, as he's beginning to start a new covenant that we call Eucharist or the Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. He looks them in the eye and he says these words, a new command that I give you. Now, they probably didn't want another command. They were, they were already held up with 600 plus laws of Judaism. Uh, they were constantly being badgered and looked at upon by other individuals. Were they keeping those laws? Were they making the mark? Were they, were they edging, up or edging up? Were they doing what they were supposed to do? And Jesus now says, a new command I give you. Guys, they probably wanted another one like a hole in the head. But Jesus speaks those words. And he says, all the laws of the religion are no longer going to keep you busy. But this one thing I want you to know, love one another. Love. Love one another. 
Now, he could have just stopped right there. But you know what? If I say to you, you need to love one another, or we, we need to love one another, again, we're going to go through that intrinsic place in our minds, and we're going to start defining what love looks like. Well, it's going to be people that I agree with or who agree with me. It's going to be people who think the way that I think. It's the people that look the way that I look. It's the people that are in the same social class. I'm going to love those because, you know, it's going to be so easy because we've got so much in common, and I don't want to be in conflict with anybody, so, so I'm going to make sure that we all think alike. But Jesus says that the commandment doesn't just stop with love one another. He says these words. He says, love one another as I have loved you. So, so Jesus takes a word and he turns it into a verb. And not only that, he, he, he goes even further than that. And, and, and he makes it an imperative form of the verb. And literally the way that this translates, when he says, love one another, he tra it's translated in a sense that says, see that person across the room, go over there and love them. See that person sitting right up here? You in the back, come up and love her. That's what it translates to. So Jesus is saying there's something about this word love that we need to define, something that, that means something even greater. Love one another as I have loved you. So how we are to love one another is how God loves us. And do you see that, that when Jesus brings us new command, he is pushing buttons, he is shattering every bit of thinking that people had up to that point because they all thought that they themselves defined who they would love. Why they would love, when they would love, how they would love. And Jesus said, wait a minute. This is a command. Love one another as I have loved you. I mean, this, this is one of those things that just is earth-shattering. You know, Jesus no longer called for this uh, me and God thing. He, he called for something that was greater than that. Uh, he calls us to a higher standard. He calls us to a life that is set apart from the world. Because the world will say... You define who you're to love, how you're to love, when you're to love, and why. But Jesus said, this is something different. It's called the royal love. So many of us in our past have thought of the golden rule. Do unto others as you want others to do unto you. Well, and we kind of think about that. Well, I, uh, I'll treat you nice because I want you to treat me nice. Do you see the, the, the reciprocity or a term that we hear in the news today, quid pro quo? Do you hear that? I do this and you do that in return. You know, you, you be nice to me and I'll be nice to you. And Jesus says that's not the way it works with God. The way it works with God is it's what God does. It's not about you and me. It's solely about what God does. So Jesus is telling us that the kind of love that he's talking about, love others the same way that he has loved us, is anchored in a person. It's not anchored in holiness laws. It's not anchored in the old Judaic system. It's not anchored in anything else. But he says, you love the way that I have loved you. So love is anchored in the personhood of Jesus who is the Christ. And that's where we get the definition. And that's where we see what it is we're supposed to do. Now my guess is when he said those words, that you're to love the way that I love, that the disciples and those that are sitting around the table are sitting there thinking about well, you know, um, what, what would that, how, do, how does Jesus love me and, and what does that look like? Because they had no idea that the cross was coming. You see, you and me, we, we define love based upon this symbol right here. What symbol am I pointing at? Pointing at the cross. 
That's how we define love. It's because of what Jesus did. It's through the cross that the manifestation of God's love is what we are to use as the barometer, the thermometer, whatever word you want to use to show how we're to love one another. But yet the disciples, they, they probably started thinking in their mind, you know, Matthew, he was the tax collector. And uh, Matthew was the kind of guy that, um, you know, probably uh, collected taxes against his own family. So uh, his mom probably was saving up some extra coins in the cookie jar and Matthew would visit for a, a donut or something and he'd see her hiding it in there. He'd go like, mom, pay it up. Let's go, let's go. So he was, he was probably outcast by his own family, and his vocation certainly wasn't a vocation to be memorable. It wasn't a vocation that was valued because it was a vocation that was filled with corruption. And yet Jesus looks at Matthew and he says, Matthew, when I called you, I called you to follow me. I, I called you into my family, and I've been pouring my life into you. Matthew, I have chosen to love you. And despite who you are and what people think of you, I've made the decision that I'm going to love you regardless. And Matthew, I want you to show that kind of grace to everybody else. And Matthew, I want you to love others as I've loved you. Think about Nathaniel. You know, Nathaniel was the guy that was kind of the, uh, the elitist. Because Nathaniel, it was all important about where you were born and where you lived and your address and all those other things. And whenever he heard that Jesus was coming to town, Nathaniel's first words were, nothing good will come out of Nazareth. That's a, you know what, whole town. No, nothing good can come from there. What do you mean God's coming from Nazareth in the form of a human being? And can you imagine Jesus looking at Nathaniel and saying to him as he looks at him and says, Nathaniel, you know, you, you trashed my family. You trashed my reputation. You kind of threw it all out. But yet, you know what? I invited you to be a part of my life, and I've loved you, and, I've, and I see who you are, and I know that your values are, are not what they need to be, but I've chosen to love you, and I've done nothing but demonstrate my whole love for you. So Nathaniel, I want you to love others. I want you to show grace, and I want you to show mercy to others as I've done to you. Nathaniel, love others as I've loved you. And I think for you and me, the question becomes, what if we were in the equation? What would it look like for us to say, this is how Jesus has chosen to love me. And that begins to open up so much possibility. You see, Jesus' primary concern was not that, that, that we believe something. It's not that, that uh, believing in restrictive laws of religion. What he was trying to say is it's in what we do. That it's by our actions, it's by the true personhood of who we are, that, that we are connected to God. We look, we look in, in John's gospel, and John talks about the vine and the branch. We are to be at one with God. We are to be so intertwined that, that we get everything because we are attached to God. And that begins to give us the whole identity of who we are. And Jesus looks at us in this moment, and he says, you need to love because I love you. Let me tell you what. That's not easy to do, is it? You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about you know, people that I have challenges with and, and people that don't want to do things that I think is the right thing or who think differently or live differently or, or watch different programs or, or whatever the case may be. Whatever you want to throw out there, sometimes it's hard to live into what Jesus is saying. And the important part to this is it's supposed to stretch us. You know, our faith is not supposed to be this feel-good thing that, woo, you know, we feel good about our faith. It's hard work, isn't it? Because we are so wrong on our own that when God enters our life, that's the only way we find the way. 
and we understand when we connect like that. So this coming week, I I really want you to wrestle with this. I want you to wrestle like Jacob did with the angel. And I want you to to say, you know, God, I'm really not sure I I can love people the way that that Jesus is saying. And and I want to fit into my own definition. Or maybe you're going to be courageous or bold enough to say that I'm willing to, to open my eyes into what Jesus is teaching and to learn a whole new way to love. I want you to wrestle with that. And I want you to find the way God is leading you into that. You see, in the ancient world, it was, it was very, very specific. It was all about a vertical relationship between heaven and earth. It was a vertical relationship between God and humanity. And what we saw in that was as long as humanity could no- negotiate within the rules of God, humanity felt like it was moving in the right direction. If I'm good and I make good choices and if I do good things, this is the old Judaic law, if I do good things and I realize all that, then God's going to be happy, God's going to bless me, and everything is going to be great, and and God's going to love me, and we're all going to be good and friends together. But you see, in the midst of that, Jesus, his command changes that. Because Jesus says, first of all, the greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor. So Jesus said this whole vertical way of thinking is not the complete way to think. He says we've only got half the equation right if we think vertically. Jesus said that in order to really understand what it means for God's love and God's expression is not only do we love God with everything that there is about us, but we learn how to love neighbor. So we love God and we love neighbor. And what is it that unites us? The cross. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and as he's teaching and as he's telling us these things, we understand, you know, someone once said that, that Jesus' love for the men in the room, rather than his authority over the men in the room, is what he leveraged to instruct and inspire the men in the room. So it wasn't that he had authority, it's what inspired people to, to live a life of God, but it's because he loved them. Why do we have the example of John chapter 13, where Jesus goes and he washes the feet of the disciples? If it was just that he had power and that he had authority over it, we would never see that story in the scriptures. Because it would be all about God. And we'd, in fact, we'd see Jesus saying, you need to wash my feet because I have power over you. I am your authoritarian. I am the one that you have to come and serve. You need to do this for me. But that's not at all what John 13 tells us, is it? It says that Jesus does what? He becomes the servant. And out of his love, he washes the feet of his disciples. And he demonstrates, and he says, and because you've seen me do this with you, he says, you need to go and show love to others. So this value of love is a really important God thing. It's something that's at the core of of who we are. So the men in the room would not see Jesus sitting on a heavenly throne, but they would see Jesus hanging from a cross a couple of days later. And it was out of that sacrifice that they would come to understand this greater level of love. And they would come to understand that it wasn't the old law of holiness and cleanliness that defined the love of God, but it would define the love of God because Jesus met the cross. Are you following me this morning? Are you connecting with, with what I'm trying to say? Because this is, a, this is a shift in how some of us think. And we've got to understand what Jesus' words have to say. You know, not long after hanging out with Jesus in the early parts of his ministry, 
you know, healings are happening and, and, and miracles of turning water into wine and various things are going on, something happens and, and, and Jesus is praying and, and as he's praying, he stops for a moment and he, and he asks his disciples a very important question. Here, here's what um, Luke says the, the, the time was. One time when Jesus was off praying by himself, his disciples nearby, he asked them. So he's asking them this question. What are the crowds saying about me? About who I am? So he's, he's basically saying, okay, so we, we've been out here together. We've been ministry. People have been hearing what I'm saying. They've seen what I've done. Are, are they getting it yet? Who do they say that I am? You know, am I, am I just a magician? Am I just a charismatic speaker? Am I like a rock star? What am I? And they come back and they say, wait a minute. The crowds are saying that, that you're John the baptizer, you're, you're, you're Elijah, and still others say that, that you're one of the prophets from long ago who has come back. But then, but then Jesus amps it up here. He says, and you, what are you saying about me? What are you telling others about me? Who do you say that I am? Doesn't matter what everybody else thinks, who do you? You've been with me, you've been following me, I've been teaching I've been loving you. Who do you say that I am? And Peter screams out the words, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he's probably thinking, you know, Peter, look, you know, you probably not got a whole lot up here, but it's okay. And you certainly couldn't have figured this out on your own. But it's the Father in heaven who's revealed it to you. Because Peter began to understand the love of God. And Peter at that moment began to impress upon himself this great truth. So the question that Jesus asked is, who do you say that I am? Who do you? Who do you and I tell others Jesus is? When someone says, well, who's this Jesus person? What do we say? And are we, are we bold enough into sharing what it means to understand who Jesus is? Now, there's a couple of different ways we can do that. We can either force people to believe what we believe. We can either force them to, to come into the, the family of God or through our life and through who we are and what people see in us, that Jesus is in us, and therefore, they may not agree with what we think, they may not agree with what we say, but man, they can't deny who we are. Because there's something about the core of who we are that when we love, that that changes everything, and they see the huge difference. So who am I? You know, we're all accountable to answer that question, and, and not only individually, we're, we're accountable to answer that question as a church. Church capital C, church little c. And, and we're, we're accountable to answer that as to who we are. And that's why values and understanding values is so important. I was reading not long ago that six to 10,000 churches close every year folks christianity's on the decline i don't know how else to say it it's growing in some areas it's 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 like the holy spirit's on fire in africa and and some areas like that but but here in the united states six to ten thousand churches close every that's like 100 to 200 every week that are closing their doors and when they ask people, why aren't you a part of a church? Why don't you connect in church? Why isn't a church important to you? And, and what a church represents, you know what they say? We don't know what they believe. 
We don't know what their values are. We don't see any difference between the church and the world. So why should we go and get an organized religion and, and be a part of something that, that's just not who we are? And you know what? That's on us. Shame on us. That's not my failure. That's not Pastor Pan's failure. It's our failure. All of us. We all own that. And the question becomes, when Jesus says, who am I? What are we going to deal with that? When Jesus says, the command that I've given you is to love others as I have demonstrated and made my love for you, how are we going to live into that? So we, so we began to really pray about this. And, 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 and a couple of months ago, I, I, was just, I was seeking God and I just said, you know, God, what is it you want us to be as a church? And, and how do we define this? How, how are we going to be different than maybe what people think church is? Instead of others thinking that they know what the church is against, and instead of that being the message, here's everything we're against, how can we be a church that says, here's what we're for, and here's our values? So God led me into a decision process, and that decision process was we wanted to assemble a team of people together, and we wanted individuals who, who could come together in the midst of the struggle, not like-minded, not individuals who had the same ideas, but people who brought the heart of Christ to one table, and, and I started thinking about who can represent that. And, and, and God said, you need to pick, you know, five persons from the congregation that are legacy persons. And what's a legacy person? A legacy person is someone who's been a part of this church, some of them from the very beginning, some of them for a long time. They've seen the old days, they've seen the current days, and they aspire for our future. And God said their commitment to the work of Christ in this local congregation is their number one focus. So we identified who those folks were. And then we said, wait a minute, you know, we, we suffer like a lot of churches, uh, not only in the United States, but around the world. We don't have a lot of young people. In fact, you know, if you're, if you're under the age of 50, you might find it hard to connect in most churches today. And we said, so what are we going to do about that? How, how are we going to understand a way to connect with generations that are the now, that are, that are coming up, but that are the now? So we said, okay, that's, that's people with families, that's people with little kids, that's people with students, that's people that maybe are just recent, recently had college kids go away. But it also included what we call the millennials, and you've heard me talk about this. These are the early 30s folks who, who are really missing from the churches today. And we said, you know, we need to understand and have their voice. We need them to share with us what it means and what God's expression of love is for our future. And we identified who those folks were. And then, and then God said, Bob, you know, now you need to look at, at people who are in the trenches every day. Staff. Who are some staff who, who are in the trenches every day who understand the messiness, the muddiness, the, the difficulties of ministry? Who are the ones that, that daily are sitting there going like, God, release me from this call because this is too hard. But yet know that they want to be faithful. What's God want them to do? And they stay in it anyway. And we identified them. So we have 15 persons, and we're led by a coach. And that coach helps us to make sure that we're not focusing on our own stuff that we bring to the table, but that we're really seeking the Holy Spirit. So we put this team together a couple of months ago. We meet monthly, and we, we pray together, we, we learn together, we worship together, and we lead together. And we begin to forge this bond of trust to know that the work that we have to do is very important. And God has led us in this direction. You know, our, our work isn't being done in a vacuum, but, but we said, what do we need to do? We need to establish values for the church because you know what? 
The ship needs to know the direction it's going. It's one thing to say, well, we follow Jesus, but you know what, if I asked you, I'd get, you know, 200 different answers. What does that mean, follow Jesus? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for the world? Those would be two different answers. And that's why we said we need to know what those values are. And we came upon some thoughts that, you know what, the church has to be built upon love. And that's the first value that we have is, is that we have to be building upon love and the importance of what that means. And that's why Jesus' words, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, is so important. Because it doesn't leave the definition of love or who we're to love to you and me. It puts it squarely on God. And how God has chosen to love is how we're to love. So we, we follow through this, and, and John writes this in, his God, in one of his letters, John says, my beloved friend. So imagine, imagine the Apostle John is looking at us. He's in the room right now, and he's looking, and he's saying these words. My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other since love comes from God. Now notice he doesn't say, because love comes from all of us. Are you catching this? This is really important to get. You and I are not the source of love. God is. And he says, because it comes from God. Everyone who's lo who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. And the person who refuses to love doesn't know the first thing about God. Why? Because God is love. So we can say that we are, we are of God, but when we are choosing not to love, John says, we're not very credible. And we probably don't understand the source of love. And he goes on. And he says, this is how God showed us his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love that we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that God loves us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear our sins away and the damage that they've done to our relationship with God. So the expression of God's love is Jesus Christ and the cross. And it's to take away our sin. He says this in closing. He says that, my dear, dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, then we certainly ought to love each other. No one has seen God ever, but if we love one another, then God dwells deeply within us and his love becomes complete in us, perfect love. Until we identify with godly love, where we can love others as Jesus has loved us, then, then we have not gotten to the godly, perfect love yet. Because it's not just a vertical relationship. It's horizontal as well. Love. This is our core value. Here it is on love. And it says, it goes like this. It says, we love God and others. We love because we're loved. So that's the primary impetus of who we are. We love God and others, and we love because God, because we are loved. And we get that because Christ loves us. Now imagine for a second a church. Imagine a church where the skeptical world may disagree with us on a lot of things. But the one thing that they can connect with us is, is they see how we love others. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine your neighbor who knows you're a Christian ends up being rejoicing because they live next to you. Now the home next to us, I think it's sold. We're not sure. The sign's gone. 
But I can only imagine when that neighbor moves in and they find out they have a pastor next door, they probably will never come out of their house. But what will it be like when Patty and I love them because Jesus loved us? That's the church God calls us to be.